Well, good evening, and good evening to those of you who are listening and watching online tonight. I'm Pastor David Nigro filling in for Pastor Rick Gaston, and I am one of the majority pastors here at uh, Calvary Chapel. What I mean by that is I don't have hair, and if, if you don't know what I'm talking about, well, then you missed Sunday's message with Pastor Sean, and... Uh, You've missed something, for sure. Well, if you would, open your Bibles tonight to Mark chapter 3, and this is verse 16. I've I've titled tonight's message, What's in a Name? Reading from Mark 3.16, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. Often, I think people give their children a name with the hope that that child will live up to the characteristic or the meaning of the the name itself. What what's behind that name? And I, I'm not so sure that that's what's going on nowadays. I mean, here recently, there's a lot of names that um, I don't know. People just kind of make them up. But for the most part, I believe a lot of folks do, in fact, think through when they name their children what goes behind the name in hopes of that. Now, Mark tells us that Jesus gave Simon the name Peter, which in the Greek is Petros, which means rock or closer to little rock or a stone. Now, Peter would later make the connection that Jesus is the chief cornerstone, and we, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house. When we think of a stone, though, we, I think, think of it being something that's solid and stable, right? Something that's useful for building. But so much of Peter's early behavior seemed, I think, anything but stable. He was a man who was marked by a rash and uh, an impulsive personality. But Jesus saw beyond the man he was looking at to the man that Peter would later become. Much has been said, I think, to criticize uh, the Apostle Peter's actions, because certainly when you look at his life and ministry um, in Scripture, there's a lot that, that Peter got wrong. However, he was a man of action, and I think he was a man of firsts, who um, I believe was a natural leader in many respects. And I've found in life that uh, those that um, are criticized are generally those that do something. If you kind of hang back in the shadows, it's safe. You probably won't be criticized, but you probably won't accomplish anything either. Tonight, I want to take a look at uh, Peter's call to ministry and just a couple of things that are, I believe, highlights from his actions in the Bible, some of which I think may be considered his more memorable failures as we consider this apostle who was, if nothing else, I think, a man of action. The New Testament provides limited information on Peter's life and background before his call to discipleship. His Hebrew name is Simon, and later, of course, Jesus gives him the name Peter. His father's name is Jonah. You may see in some translations that uh, as John. And his brother's name is Andrew, who we also know is a disciple of Jesus. Now, Peter grew up in Bethsaida, which um, is a fishing village in the shore of the Sea of Galilee, and he operated a fishing business there with the Zebedee brothers, James and John, who were also disciples of Jesus. He apparently was married, and we also know that he lived in Capernaum. 
Now, I want to start this evening looking at Peter's call to ministry, and that's going to be in Luke 5, and this is verses 1 through 11. And so it was, as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God, that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret and saw two boats standing by the lake. But the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. Then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little from the from land. And he sat down and he taught the multitudes from the boat. When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, Launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And when... They had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats, so they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will catch men. So when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and followed him. So it's not by mistake that Jesus chose Peter's boat to teach from. It's a divine appointment that God has orchestrated here. I think when we read such things, oftentimes we kind of just read over it as, you know, this is what's happening. And granted, that is the case. It's informational. But there's something more happening here than just what we're reading. God has put this together for a reason. You know, on the surface, Jesus is just looking to put some distance between him and the crowd that's pressing in on him and, you know, to find a better way in which to speak to that crowd. However, if we read a little further, we see, right, what's happening is, the Lord is getting ready to call his disciples and beginning a new phase of his ministry, which he'll form an inner circle of men that he's going to invest in and he's going to invest the gospel to. Now, the importance, I think, for Peter is something that can't be overstated because if he simply dismissed what Jesus was doing here, um, he did miss the opportunity to see the power of Christ and possibly his opportunity to be called to ministry. You know, I think there's divine appointments in in all of our lives. And um, if we're not careful, we can miss them. The primary way I think that happens is that uh, we're just not sensitive to what the Holy Spirit is doing. And and I don't want to encourage people to be over-spiritualizing things either, right? Because when you wake up and you see the clock says 3.33 a.m., You don't need to read into that. If you get up a lot like I do, there's a good chance that's going to happen. But what I am saying is that God is always at work. You know, there's a spiritual battle that's taking place around us all the time. Whether we're aware of that or sensitive to it is another story. What is it that we're picking up on? What is it that we may or may not be missing in this? Romans 8.5, Paul writes, he says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. 
And we do need to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. What do you do in order to do that? How do you set your mind on the things of the Spirit? Well, I think there are many things in life that compete for our time and our energy, our attention. And it requires a discipline on our part to take the time to be sure that we're meditating upon the things of the Lord. How do you do that? Well, you do that through the time that you spend in your devotions as you read, as you sit under the word being taught as you are this evening, as you do in prayer. And prayer, you know, prayer, you should have a time where you set aside a, a you know, definitive period where you pray. But you should also be praying throughout the day to be connected to the Lord throughout the day. You can do it very informally. Just speak to him. And I think it is, you know, one of the things that uh, we have to do in order to be mindful of spiritual things. Because everything around us, this view that we have at all times, is such a, a big influence on us. The physical realm that we're in, that uh, unless we really work at it, I don't think we spend a whole lot of time thinking spiritually. Now, if you're somebody who says, well, I just don't have time. Well, I think that we're all busy. It's more about the priorities that we set than it is really about how much time you have. You know, I manage to eat and drink and do other things every day because they're important, right? And if we treated our spiritual life in a similar fashion, I think that we would make the time. And, you know, some days, I grant you, they're just so full of everything else in life that you probably can't get it done. But is that every day? I don't think it is. At least it isn't for me. I just find that it's easier to say that I'm too busy. Now, in this passage, we read that Peter and the other fishermen, they're washing their nets a little ways from shore when, um, I'm sorry, a little way from the boats when Jesus gets into Peter's boat. And it's an interesting contrast that, you know, these guys are, they're out doing what they need to do to, to keep their business running while Jesus is being pursued by this crowd that wants to hear from him. Now, isn't that a lot like we're talking about, where life is just so busy with daily chores and such? Well, when Jesus gets in Peter's boat and asks him to put out a little ways, he doesn't object to it. He doesn't even question it. Because, you know, for one, this isn't the first time that that Peter has met Jesus. There's an account of their meeting in John chapter 1, which predates this. So it isn't just this stranger walking up and getting in his boat and, and saying, hey, put out a little ways. He knows who it is. But he puts everything aside at Jesus' request. And I think this is one of the key things that we should be picking up in this. After, you know, Jesus finishes teaching, he tells them to go out and put down their nets. Now, you know, at first he gives a little bit of a pushback on this because they just finished cleaning those things. Now, you know, when you throw nets out and they don't catch fish, they catch a bunch of other stuff. And it all has to be picked out of the nets and it has to be prepped for the next day. And so they just worked all night trying to fish. This is the business that they have, right? And they didn't get anything in the same place that they're about to put out into. And they just finished putting these nets up. And then the Lord says, hey, put out a little ways and throw down the nets. And I think Peter's just trying to be kind of polite, like, well, you know, we did this already, Lord, and nothing nothing happened. And so 
he says, well, but nevertheless, and he, he, at your word, I'll, I'll, I'll put it out. And he does. And of course, you know, we all know the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting different results. So probably Peter's thinking this is, this is not very wise. But the result was more fish than they could handle. And in this, his first reaction was this acute awareness to his sin. And I think this is, I think it's something that's really important to catch here because it wasn't just the celebration of the fish. It was seeing himself before Jesus as someone unworthy because he recognized in Christ, he recognized God. And at this point, he immediately sees himself as not fit to be in his presence even, kneeling before him. And, you know, his reaction of not being worthy, I think, is, um, is the kind of heart that makes a person useful to the Lord. I think it's an important first step. In 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 29, Paul writes this. He says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And to and the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. So now reading this, you can't feel especially good about your credentials for being called, can you? I mean, unless, of course, God leaves this little sliver here because he does say not many. So if you want to put yourself in the not many category, I guess you can do that. But I think what we what we gather from this is God is purposeful in what he, he's doing when he calls those individuals to him. And a big part of it, as we read in this, is simply that the glory should go to God, as is rightfully so. And the fact that God chooses those who the world sees as not particularly noteworthy, I think allows him to receive that glory. And, and he's the one who deserves it. That he chooses men and women who don't naturally possess the qualities that make them successful in a particular thing is very deliberate. Uh, his methods to save the lost are very similar. The world sees the cross as defeat, but God sees it as victory over sin and death. The world would choose the best marketing company to spread the gospel, but God chose fishermen. And you look at all of what he does in this and you understand that it's very specific for that reason. Because otherwise man would capture the glory. It's within his nature to do so. And so he takes that option away. I mean, look at it this way. You know, we are instruments, I believe, in God's hands. And if we imagine a surgeon and a scalpel and you're waiting for your loved one to come out of surgery and the doctor comes out and says, I saved your loved one. Surgery was a success. But you run past him into the operating room to the, t- to the little tray table where the scalpel is and you start praising the scalpel. You would be considered a lunatic. And the reason is simply because we know where the skill came from. We know who's really responsible there. 
It isn't the scalpel. It's, it's the surgeon. It is, it is with God and us. When we accomplish something for God, it isn't really us. And for those who, who want to claim that glory, well, um, they do so because of their own pride. Now, there are some principles in ministry that I think are found here that are important to also make note of. And the first is uh, availability, right? Peter is busy about his fishing business when the, when the Lord shows up. Yet he stopped what he was doing and he made himself and his property available to the Lord. You know, if you don't make yourself available for God's call when it comes to service, he simply passes you by. Maybe doesn't come back to, to call on you again. And it's true, I think, for every Christian because the Lord's unable to use those who are not available to him. He's not going to cause you to serve unless you want to. Availability ends up being more important than ability because God will not force you to be available, but if you make yourself available, he will give you what you need in order to serve. God often, I think, doesn't reveal what capabilities you have to be made use to him until the time in which you make yourself available to him. And that means, you know, the gifts that he's given to you. The Bible makes it very clear that you have spiritual gifts that are given to you. You may or may not know what some of those are. You probably don't know what all of those are. And some of those you may never know because you never make yourself available to him. And and I want you to imagine this. Can you imagine, you know, giving a child gifts that as soon as they open them, they toss them to the side without any interest? You'd say to yourself, why did I bother giving him that? And I think it's similar in that when God waits for us to begin to, to make ourselves available is when he starts to unfold these things to us. And I've seen this over and over again in ministry where Someone will begin stepping out, and as they do that, God begins to unfold these things in them that they didn't know they had. Usually, a surprise for them and a great blessing for the body of Christ. And so, you know, if you don't know what all your gifts are, one of the ways to start finding out is to begin serving. Because it's in this, I believe, that we learn what God has given to us. Now, I want to add that making yourself available isn't just about making time. That is certainly part of it. But it's also having a heart that's open to what God wants you to do. Because you can put limits on it if you want, and then you're not so available. So, in other words, putting up parameters. You know, I'm, I'm going to be available, but God, um, these things I don't want to do, these things I will do. Um, not a good place to start. Just be open. And see what God will do would be my encouragement to you. Now, the second principle here is obedience. I mean, if you make yourself available, again, what with terms, uh, what are you going to get done? And the Lord's very gentle in this. You know, he doesn't strong arm us into doing what he wants us to do. Uh, He can encourage us in different ways, I grant you. But, you know... What we're talking about is 
your will? Is God going to, is he going to violate your will in order to get you to do something? And I will tell you that God never violates your will. He is sovereign, but the sovereignty of God does not vacate the will of man. It's an important thing, not just in the, the point I'm making here with Peter, but in your theology, it's an, an important thing to understand about God. Because there are doctrines out there that do teach that God's sovereignty can override the will of man. And I just, I, I don't see that anywhere in Scripture. I see quite the opposite. The Bible's clear both in word and in example that he's given us a free will. Then, you know, if that weren't the case, the logic in that would demand that God would never have allowed Adam and Eve to sin. If he just violates our will because he wants to, why did he then allow us to enter into sin? It doesn't make any sense to me. Um, well, you might say, well, well, if God's all-powerful and all-knowing, why didn't he prevent man from entering into sin? And the answer to that is love doesn't exist outside of free will. And God wants a people that will love him. And he's not going to get that by force. And we understand that in this world just as, as easily. You know, you can't force someone to love you, or it's not love. And um, that's not any different with God. And he, he could create beings that simply worship him, but in order to love him, in the genuine sense of that, it needs to come from a place of free will. Now, this doesn't deny the sovereignty of God, and not at all saying that. Could he force man to do as he wants? Sure, we'd have no, no right to question him. However, if he did that, I believe our capacity to love him is absent, along with our free will. And it's not what the scriptures teach us, and it's not what the examples throughout the scripture show us. Another principle here is that God can fill our nets to bursting, but not if we don't throw them overboard. That's pretty noteworthy, isn't it? You know, if Peter just didn't do it, said, no, I'm not, I'm not going through this again. I just finished cleaning those nets. We just went out there. We fished. Nothing happened. I, Lord, I, I, we can't do this. Well, they'd missed a great blessing. If he took that attitude, uh, God wouldn't have had the chance to bless him as he did. You know, assigning the limitations of finite man to God will result in you having a faith that is equal to what man is capable of instead of what God is capable of. And that is, I think, one of the important things to bear in mind. If you look at God and place limitations like you would on a man, you're going to have that level of faith. And... Um, it is absolutely the wrong approach. The third lesson here is from humility. You know, humility at its core, it's a correct understanding of our place before a holy God. And, uh, you know, if we don't get that right, uh, we're not really of any use in terms of ministry. Peter's reaction to the miracle of the fish was, I think, to see himself as unworthy. And the Bible teaches us to humble ourselves in the sight of the Lord and to esteem others better than ourselves. You know, quite opposite of what the world teaches, isn't it? 
You know, we live in an age of selfies and, uh, you know, living your best life on look at me social media, which uh, is all about me. And, you know, that's the world we live in right now. But if we can humble ourselves, God can begin to work. He can begin to do something with us. And, you know, when I talk about ministry, just a reminder there, I'm not talking about you know, a full-time ministry type of program. I'm talking about the body of Christ in service. Ephesians chapter 4 makes it very clear that as Christians, we are to be serving. We are to be about the ministry. And so that's what I'm speaking about as I talk about ministry tonight. Um, Now, something to guard against here is the idea of being so unworthy that God can't use you. Um, and I'm not advocating that's what we're talking about. You know, having this attitude that I am such a wretch, God can't use me. Well, listen, we're all a wretch in comparison to who God is. And and if that is the case and nobody is fit, then God can't use anybody. But that's not how it works. Um, he, in fact, does use people. And so to understand that um, we're all sinners and that we're not worthy is is accurate to this point. God makes us worthy by ascribing the righteousness of Jesus Christ to us. And there's where the worthiness comes from. Are we flawed? Yes. And you will continue to be that way until you go home and are with the Lord. Um, but in the meantime, there's a lot of work to get done. And um, understanding that, because we're flawed is not reason to not be in ministry um, is an important one. Now, having said that, I also want to be clear that you can disqualify yourself for service by disobedience, right? And, and everything I just said, um, I'm not saying that you, you just the, anything goes with God because, of course, that's not the case, right? There's um, a news article recently where there's this pastor and mayor of his town, who was found to be an internet drag queen. Apparently he's dressing up like a woman and he's on the internet. And they find this out, and so they confront him about it. And um, he doesn't have a problem with it, either in terms of the ministry or in public office. He thought it it was just his personal time. And uh, I can assure you he's disqualified for both ministry and public service. Um, You know, so you certainly can be disqualified by what you do. Because the one who is engaged in impenitent and and willful, sinful practice, um, they're disqualified to be in service. They need to fix that before they can begin to serve. Paul writes to Timothy this in 1 Timothy 3.10, but let these also first be tested and then let them serve as deacons, being found blameless. So that is the scripture to back that up. Now I want to take a look at um, Peter walking on water. This is Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 32. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now when evening came, he was alone there. 
But the boat was now in the middle of the sea, tossed by the waves, for the wind was contrary. Now in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went to them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It's a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, Come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand, and he caught him and said to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got in the boat, the wind ceased. Now, the the Sea of Galilee, as it's referred to, is really a lake, but it's seven miles wide and 13 miles long. So they're four miles from shore now, about midway across, during a pretty intense storm, it seems. And the hour is somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m., so maybe getting close to dawn. And suddenly they see this man walking on the waves. And they suppose it's a ghost. And to be fair, why would they think it's a man? They've never seen anyone walk on water, including Jesus. And here they are in the middle of the lake, and there's someone walking. Well, I think it's reasonable to assume this is a spiritual being. And it is somewhat of a comedic scene, isn't it? These guys are in the boat, and they've been rowing hard, right, trying to get across the lake. The wind is contrary to them, so they've got a headwind, and here they are rowing, and and all of a sudden they see Christ walking on the water. Uh, I think that's funny. Um, And he just looks at them and says, you know, hey, be of good cheer. It's I. Don't be afraid. And I think, That had to be a pretty funny scene. I mean, not for them, but because I mean, they had reasons to be afraid, don't you think? I mean, one, they never seen anyone walk on water. The last time they saw Jesus, he was four miles on land, headed up a mountain. Now they come across him in the middle of the lake, and he's minus a boat. I mean, there's a lot of things about this, I think, that's frightening. So now Peter, you know, and I love this about this guy. This is one of the reasons he's one of my favorite characters in the scripture. Um, he's just so rash and so impulsive, you know. He, his first thought is, oh, Jesus, is that you? Well, tell me to come to you, and then I'll believe it. What, what kind of plan was that, right? I mean, and so he, the Lord says, yeah, come. So Peter steps out of the boat. And, he, and he's walking on water. And so, you know, for at least a little while, and he gets, I think he gets pretty close to the Lord as, as he then loses his bearing and starts to sink, and the Lord is able to reach out and just hold him up at this point and then get him to the boat. Now, when you listen to the Lord's rebuke um, about Peter's faith, was it because Peter doubted it was him and had to get out of the boat, or was it because he doubted he could sustain him walking on the water. Well, here's what I think. I mean, I don't think you get out of the boat unless you think it's Jesus. Do you? I mean, I just, I don't see how you do that. Um, And I think it's more of, you know, him losing his 
focus on the Lord as he's walking on water and becomes frightened and then begins to sink. And I think this is more of what's being addressed here. But, you know, how often in life are we willing to step out from the safety of our comfort zone at the word of the Lord? You know, I mean, what are we willing to risk in order to follow the Lord's call in our lives? I think for most of us, we put limits on what we're going to do when it comes to stepping out in faith. You know, that fear of failure or the cost being too great, it, it can cause us to stay in the boat. And, you know, that feeling of helplessness, of, of, of you know, being out of your element, out beyond your control, it's not, it's not easy. And yet, you know, um, Peter took that step. Yeah, he, I mean, he had to cry out to, to keep from drowning, but at least he's willing to venture out and um, to depend on the Lord. And I think that's noteworthy. How many Christians go their whole lives never leaving the boat? And, you know, Peter, he, he gets gently rebuked for doubting. And I, I think um, that lack of faith, like I said, was, you know, towards the end there where he just got distracted by the wind and the waves. And um, I don't see how he wasn't distracted immediately. But, you know, he made it far enough to get nearer to the Lord. You know, when I was in the Marines uh, and I was deployed to sea, we had a tropical storm that we got caught in for, I don't know, about 24 hours. And I managed to get up to the deck to take some pictures of pretty rough sea during a resupply of the ship. Now, you might ask, David, why were you on the deck taking unnecessary risks? Well, that's, you know, calculated risks is what makes good Marines, and it also makes for some good pictures. Now, you know, the thought, though, of going overboard in a stormy sea is pretty frightening. I mean, uh, you, when you're latched onto a big ship, you, you, you know, have some sense of comfort in that. But the thought of going overboard is absolutely horrifying. So how hard was it for Peter to step off of that boat uh, in a stormy sea? It had to be hard. It requires faith. And I think it's a, it's a powerful thing that's exhibited in this illustration here. And the second part to this is not that initial step only, but you need to be able to trust God once you're called to something to see you through it. Because if you go into it looking at it from a perspective that you have the strength, you have the ability in your strength and ability then you're going to have a hard time. And the reality is we need to be looking for Christ to give to us what we need. And he does that through the Holy Spirit. So depending upon the Spirit is what is needed to be able to carry these things out. And um, having faith when trouble comes is a part of that. Now, I do want to pick up another point here, um, and that's, you know, this. Where doubt came in and faith went out. And, you know, the enemy to faith is fear. These two things, they just don't coexist at the same time. If one is present, the other one isn't. And we see that over and over again. Now, you have to ask yourself, when looking at this next Example, why are these guys always in a boat in a storm? Because I'm going to bring you to another example here where God points this out to us. But, you know, 
Well, they were fishermen, and you, the boat was the easiest way to get around, so it makes sense. Anyway, let's go to Mark four thirty-eight through 40. We read this. But he was in the stern, asleep on a pillow, he being Jesus. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. But he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And so here I think Jesus gives an example of, you know, faith and fear. They are at polar opposites. I also find it interesting that Mark saw fit to include that Jesus was asleep on a pillow. I'm not really sure why he had to put that in there. Perhaps he felt like, yeah, while the rest of us were about to drown, the Lord was asleep on a pillow. Um, Not sure. When I get to heaven, maybe I get a chance to ask him. In any case, a pretty clear example, I think, that faith and fear are opposite each other. But, you know, the Christian, we're not... We're not called to be afraid. We're, we're called to have faith. Second Timothy 1.7, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Because if you let fear dominate your life, you're going to be kept bound and tormented by it. God's broken our chains. He's given us life and peace, not fear and death. You need to learn to trust God. I know that sounds easy. And it's, it's a simple way to look at it, perhaps. But it's the only way, ultimately. There are times where that's your choice. Either be afraid or trust God. I choose to trust him. I have every reason to. He's never failed me, nor will he. And, you know, if I look at uh, my situation, and instead of looking at God, there's, chances are I'm going to be afraid. Just like Peter was when he looked at the wind and the waves, he immediately became afraid. Taking our eyes off of the Lord tends to do that. So when the devil is pushing in on you and wants you to be afraid, I just encourage you to know that the Lord's got you, to trust him, no matter what. Does that mean he'll deliver us from everything in life? Nope, it doesn't. But it'll deliver us through everything in life. This isn't it, and we need to remember that, you know, this time that we have on the earth, it is a flash in the pan, but it is nothing compared to eternity. And eternity is where we go to be with our Lord. So all that's happening around us, not that it's insignificant, but it is to be kept in perspective, I think, for us as Christians, to understand that... uh, Our citizenship is not here. It's in heaven. And to be mindful of that, particularly when we're going through some difficult times. Now, there is a difference between being presumptive and and being called to something. You know, it's an important distinction. Many Christians, I think, make the mistake of going where God has not called them because they were led by their emotions or ambitions and not really by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Many years ago, my wife and I, we had a missionary stay with us. They came to our church to speak, and they were looking to raise funds to go to the Amazon tribes and evangelize them. And uh, his plan was including to take his wife and his five children to the Amazon. And I remember, you know, as he was 
talking about this, I thought to myself, you know, is God really behind this? I mean, the Amazon is a pretty foreboding place if you don't know. And I wondered if God was really calling him there. And um, I had no other information, just looking at it at face value. But a couple of years later, he did manage to raise the money, and they eventually went. And it didn't take long, though. I think six months, and his wife has to come back. And I can't remember if it was two or three of the, of the kids, but they got sick, like seriously ill, and had to come back to the States. Not long after that, he became seriously ill, had to come back to the States. Now, this, this approach to mission work, you know, it's repeated throughout, I think, a lot of churches in America. And, and here's how it works. A missionary comes and speaks at the church, shows pictures of whatever mission field they've been on or intend to go to. And then they generally ask the congregation to pray and see if God, you know, has um, any leading for you to either maybe enter into that mission field or perhaps support them in some other way. But I think... A lot of times when people respond to this in the sense of entering the mission field, it's not so much a leading of the Lord as it is they are moved by what they've seen. And there are big problems with that. Because if God isn't calling you to something and you just think that he He is, um, you are um, headed into some dangerous territory. Because God isn't sending you there to begin with. Now, I'm not saying that adventure in faith has to succeed or else it wasn't of God. Because there are real obstacles in life. We have a real enemy. And certainly, um, there are things that go wrong, even when God does send us. But what I am saying is you need to learn to be led by the Spirit and not by the premise of what could be wrong with this. Um, Because there can be a lot wrong with it if God isn't leading you. It's tough to learn the lesson that not every need is a calling. Now, if you are called to step out in some fashion, and I don't mean necessarily the mission field, but in anything that God's directing you to, are you discerning the direction of the Holy Spirit? And if so, do you have enough faith to see it through? I mean, are you going to be too afraid to take that step? Or are you going to take it and then trust God to carry out the call. My encouragement to you is to do it. You know, you, we will, in our lives, we want assurances, right? I do. I want, I want to be in control of everything. Like if I'm going on a trip, I can assure you I've planned this thing out like six different ways, right? The internet's a wonderful thing. Uh, you can learn all kinds of stuff. And then I, I try to minimize like the suffering on my trip, basically, right? It's kind of what it comes down to. You know, you, you want to like make sure you get the right hotel, all that kind of stuff. You like to be in control. Who doesn't, right? We, that's what we want. We want assurances. I want smooth sailing, right? Well, it's not like that in faith. Or it's not faith. Not everything is assured to you up front. Not everything is laid out to, to make you comfortable. Sometimes God calls us to things we're just not comfortable with. Let me tell you something that maybe points this out to you. I had never had any ambitions to be a pastor. This is not something I ever thought about. First of all, I don't like public speaking. Doesn't God have a sense of humor? So what I'm saying in all of that is you, you just have to understand that God does things once we begin to allow him, as we step out in faith little by little, deeper and deeper. 
And until God has accomplished things in you, you didn't know he would be able to do. Now, I have to say, I admire Peter in his situation, even though he was afraid. I don't, who wouldn't be? But the fact that he stepped out, we have a couple of great things that came out of that. You know, and, and of course, one is he's the only other guy besides Jesus who's on record walking on water, right? The only one. And we've got a great example of being sure to keep our focus on the Lord when we've stepped out in faith because it is trusting him that gets us through. Now, next I want to take a look at um, one of Peter's less than finer moments. And this is Luke 22 through 47, or 47 through 51. And this is the incident of Peter cutting off uh, Malchus's ear. Verse 47, And while he was still speaking, behold, a multitude, and he who was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When those around him saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, Permit even this. And he touched his ear and he healed him. Well, John was kind enough to tell us that it's Peter. Big surprise, right? Um, it's, it's just his, it's his personality. They're asking questions. He's swinging a sword, right? Because that's who he was. Now, he wasn't waiting around. He's taking, taking action. And uh, just classic Peter. So, you know, the other side note to this is, Healing Malchus's ear was the last recorded miracle that Jesus did before his resurrection. It's just not unlike our Lord having to clean up the mess we make of things, isn't it? Now, looking at the scene from the perspective of, uh, I think, a fuller understanding of Scripture, we might otherwise wonder, you know, why did Peter do what he did? Why didn't he just allow this to happen? Because Jesus told them this. He told them this is what's going to happen. And yet, he was so quick uh, to try to prevent it. Well, I think we get some insight to that in Luke eighteen thirty-one through 34, where Christ foretells his death and resurrection. Then he took the 12 aside and he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all these things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. They will scourge him and kill him. And the third day he will rise again. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not know the things which were spoken. So yes, they heard what Jesus said, they just didn't understand it. They didn't, un they didn't understand or accept it for what it was. They had a different view of what was going to take place than what Jesus is saying here. I think the confusion was pretty evident in what was taking place here later in the garden. Now, in all the gospel accounts of this incident, we find Jesus rebukes the actions of Peter. It's a physical response to a spiritual event, and it's not what God was looking for. So we, you know, we know that this is not the intent of the Lord at any point in time that the disciples would be fighting in, in, against others for. He says this later on when he speaks to Pilate. And Pilate asks him if he, if he is king of the Jews. Jesus says, I am a king. And he says, uh, but my kingdom is not of this world. 
If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. So this is the heart of the Lord. He isn't looking for us to be, you know, physically fighting. Um, but I think, well, Peter's actions really can't be condoned in that physical sense he's, he, in what he was doing. I do think he exhibited some important virtues to have as a Christian. And, you know, one of, one of which is courage. You know, in all of what was happening, these disciples are outnumbered by an armed mob. And Peter stood at the front to engage those that um, were, were coming for Jesus, regardless of the danger to himself and the consequences that might come of that. And at that moment, I think he was willing to sacrifice himself in protection of the Lord whom he loved. How many Christians are willing to stand openly for Christ in the face of a world that's hostile to them? I mean, just change it up a little bit. Just what, what would you, what would I be willing to do when we are facing those who are hostile to Christ? And there's a lot of people who are. There are institutions who are clearly hostile towards Jesus. Are you willing to be identified with Jesus and to suffer as a result of that? And I mean, I encourage you to be bold and courageous about your faith in Christ. You know, learn to not back down. Um, if you shrink and you cower over your faith, what's going to happen is you'll be a prisoner to that. Uh, it, learn to live openly for Christ, and I think you're going to experience a freedom in that, and then you'll gain courage in the process of that. And you will be able to actually be, I think, significant use to God. You know, uh, being in the workplace, being, you know, in your school, wherever you might find yourself. You know, if you're one of these secret agent Christians, it does you no good. Uh, your faith needs to be open and it needs to be bold. I don't I don't mean, you know, sandwich board walking around with John, you know, 316 on it. I, that's not what I'm saying, but I am saying to be almost ashamed of your faith or not even declaring it is a problem. It will be an issue. You're going to find it extremely awkward when other people are around you asking you things and you don't know what to say rather than saying, no, that's, you know, that's not who I am. I'm a Christian and I don't want to do that. Uh, It's a lot easier to live openly. Believe me, once you learn to do that and you will, be somebody that God can use in, in those places you find yourself as a result of that. Because I promise you this, somebody knows that you love the Lord and they see your faith is genuine. When they start running into problems in life, a lot of times they're going to come find you because they believe you have something that is useful to them in their times of trouble, let's say, for instance. And I know this because I've had this happen. And then God has used that. God has used that to save people through that encounter where their life was upside down, but because they knew that I trusted Christ and that drew them to me, I could talk with them and then I could ultimately witness to them and they received Christ as a result of that. So if I had not been that way, open at you know, my workplace about who I am in Christ, that wouldn't have happened that way. And so uh, just an encouragement there. You know, Paul writes this, right? I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, where it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also the Greek. Something to keep in mind. Next, I want to look at Peter's loyalty in this. You know, there's a stark contrast 
to the betrayal of Judas Iscariot here and the loyalty of, of Peter in this scene. He's fiercely loyal to Christ, possessive even, right? And um, I think loyalty is a virtue that, that seems to be lost today, uh, largely. I look around, it seems that you know so many people are just out for themselves and they don't really have an allegiance to anyone or anything. And the world seems to encourage this you know, just to be increasingly more interested in what uh, we want. And, um, you know, this goes for, I mean, just employees and employers. This is something that is interesting to me. You know, it used to be, you know, somebody invested themselves in a corporation, let's say, and they worked there till, you know, they got that gold watch 35, 40 years later. Well, that doesn't happen very often anymore. I mean, usually, and it's not—it's just not the employees that that you know decide not to stay. A lot of times, there isn't on the part of the employers the care that used to be there and the loyalty towards those employees to to foster that back from the employee. And so, a lot of times now, it's just let me see what I can get, and I'm on to the next place. And um, that's more of the the world that we live in today. You know, friendships, they, they quickly collapse over petty differences and intolerances towards one another and, and you know, towards each other's faults. Uh, even within the body of Christ, we, I think we find Christians who treat the church that way, they treat their pastors that way, they treat other, you know, believers that way. It's like, if you do something, say something that I don't like, I'm done. It's just no tolerance, no loyalty, if you will. Um, and uh, it's a shame, but it does, unfortunately, exist in the church also. Well, you might say that Peter ended up denying Christ later, and I would agree with you, he did, but so did all the disciples. They were distraught, and they were discouraged, and, you know, at that point, um, I don't know that you could blame them, any of them, for that matter. But both in this moment and then after Jesus restores Peter, he was a man who was courageous and loyal all the way through. You know, he would play a significant role in establishing the church, and, and in the end, he would be martyred uh, for his faith. In all that I see with him, I think there's a lot to learn and to admire from him. I think Jesus saw past all of Peter's flaws to the man he would become once he followed after him. And I think this is why I, th I think that he changed his name. Revelation 2.17, we read this, Jesus speaking, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Well, that's to you and I, Christian. Someday, we'll, we, when we get to heaven, God is going to give us a stone with a name that only we will know. And I wonder, perhaps, this new name that God gives to us is representative of who we became after we decided to follow Jesus. Let's pray. Well, Father, uh, how we thank you for all that you have given to us, particularly your word, Lord. As we study a man like Peter tonight and we see uh, just much to be admired, much to be emulated, most of all, Lord, thank you for uh, your grace and uh, your mercy, how you take us and use us in spite of our flaws. May you do that with each of us here tonight. May you uh, find us useful to you, vessels of honor. And Lord, may uh, 
You bless us as we leave this place tonight. Get us home safely, I ask. All this in Jesus' name. Amen.